long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to episode two of the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I'm so thrilled that you came back for episode two. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. It really means the world. This is totally a dream come true for me and that any of you would listen to me ramble about disasters just makes my cold heart grow two sizes. So thank you again for being here. Today, we will be talking about NASA's second space shuttle disaster, the loss of the shuttle Columbia on February 1st, 2003. I chose Columbia for two reasons. One, because I think people either get it confused with Challenger and don't really know about it at all, and that bugs me. And two, because when it happened, I was in my early 20s, and it really affected me as an adult. Um, Challenger, which happened in 1986 when I was in second grade, was a landmark moment in my youth, and I just couldn't believe as a young adult that it had happened again in my lifetime. Just felt so especially tragic, and it also felt really soon after our country's 9-11-2001 losses, and it just hit me really hard. It hit me deep. I am an empath, so I feel these things. Um, having some understanding of these disasters kind of helps me with all my big feelings that I have about them. So as a disaster queen who was alive when both shuttles were lost, I'm semi-obsessed with NASA's losses and triumphs. So at some point, I plan to cover not only the Challenger, but Apollo's 1 and Apollo's, I'm sorry, Apollo 1 and Apollo 13 as well. Apollo's 1 and 13. Uh, but for now, let's dig in on STS-07, better known as the 28th and last flight of the Space Shuttle Columbia. So a little background, the Space Shuttle Columbia was actually NASA's very first shuttle, and it made the first flight of the shuttle program in 1981 with astronauts Robert Crippen and John Young. Americans went crazy for the marvel that was the space shuttle. Um, it was the first reusable space vehicle. It went to space and came back, unlike the other um, spacecraft that were just jettisoned in space to float forever, and the astronauts returned in a special, like, return-only pod. Its first mission was orbiting the Earth for two days before landing in front of a huge, enthusiastic crowd in California on April 14th, 1981. So fast forwarding to 2003 and over 20 years later, Columbia was still going strong. STS-107 was her 28th mission and it was a mission fully devoted to science experiments in a time when most shuttle missions had something to do with servicing the International Space Station. But before I get too much into what Columbia was doing in space, let me tell you the most important part of this story. Let's talk about Columbia's seven crew members. First up is Commander Rick Husband. How would you like that for a last name? 
He was 45 years old at the time, a native Texan and an Air Force pilot and test pilot. A lot of astronauts, even from the beginning of the space program, were test pilots, and Rick Husband was no exception. He always wanted to be an astronaut ever since he was a preschooler, and every step in his career and education was with that goal in mind. He's very ambitious. Columbia was his second flight, and it was kind of a big deal for him to be made commander on just his second flight. He had previously flown on the Discovery in 1999 as part of the very first crew to dock with the International Space Station, which was kind of a big deal. Husband was also a man of deep Christian faith, and on his final request form that the astronauts filled out before they went into space in case they didn't come back, was tell them about Jesus. He's real to me. He had been married to his wife, Evelyn, for nearly 21 years, and they had two children named Laura and Matthew. Next to husband up in the flight deck was pilot William Willie McCool, who is 41 years old. He always went by Willie. Willie was an Eagle Scout, a U.S. Navy commander, a Naval Academy graduate, and also a test pilot. He had two master's degrees in computer science and aeronautical engineering. All astronauts had to have master's degree. I didn't know if you guys knew that. That was a requirement at some point for the program. Columbia was his first space flight, and he was survived by his wife, Lonnie, and their three sons. Before I go on, I should say advanced degrees. Um, They had to have advanced degrees. So if you weren't, a lot of astronauts are actually MDs. We're going to talk about a couple here who are medical doctors. But if you weren't going to get an MD or a PhD, you needed to have a master's degree. Okay, moving on. Our next crew member is Michael P. Anderson, who was the payload commander, and he was 43 years old at the time of the flight. He was a United States Air Force lieutenant colonel and pilot, and he was in charge of all the science experiments on Columbia. So science experiments were the payload, and he was the payload commander. He was selected for NASA in 1994, and his first shuttle mission was on Endeavor in 1998. So like Rick Husband, he had flown before. He also attended the same church as Rick Husband and was also a man of deep faith. And he was survived by his wife, Sandra Hawkins, and his two daughters, Casey and Sydney. Next up is one of the lady astronauts, Kalpna Chavla. She was age 40 at the time of the flight, and it was also her second flight, and she was the flight engineer on this mission, chosen by Rick Husband to be the flight engineer. Chavla was an aerospace engineer with two master's degrees and a PhD, and she was born in India. So she became a United States citizen uh, in 1991. She came over to the United States to further her education in the early 80s, but she was the first woman of Indian origin to go into space on Columbia in 1997. And she was married almost 20 years to her husband, Jean-Pierre Harrison, and she was also considered a real role model for girls in India. Interesting about her, on her first flight, she had an oopsie with the robotic arm, and so this was a redemption ride for her to be chosen again for another ride, even though she'd had a, a mistake on her first flight. And also it was a big deal and a big uh, sign of his faith for her to be chosen by Rick Husband as the flight engineer. Next up, we have David M. Brown. He was a payload specialist and he was 46 years old at the time of the flight. David Brown was the only single member of the crew. He was a Navy captain, a physician, medical doctor, flight surgeon, and test pilot. Columbia was his first space mission, 
And um, something interesting about him is he joined the Navy after medical school, and he was the only flight surgeon in a decade to be chosen for flight training to become a pilot. So he wasn't just an MD and a flight surgeon. He was also a pilot and then a test pilot. So he pretty much excelled at every path he went down. According to the book ComCheck, which is about Columbia's last flight, which I highly recommend, Brown had a premonition that he would not survive this flight. He told astronaut trainer Darla Rax that, and at least one other friend, that he had a premonition that he was going to die. He was going to, quote, burn up in space, saying, I just know I am going to die on this mission. So that is kind of crazy. But he obviously went for it anyway. What are the odds? And, um, you know, I don't know. I Like I said, I read that in that book. I don't know a lot more about it, but that was really, really interesting to me. Next, we have another of the female astronauts, Laurel Salton Clark. She was a payload specialist and she was 41 years old at the time of the flight. This was her first flight in space. Like Dr. David Brown, she was also a doctor, a Navy captain, and a physician. She was a certified undersea medical officer, which requires intensive dive training. And she was also a naval flight surgeon and a submarine medical officer. So very, very accomplished. She was married to a NASA flight surgeon, John Clark, and they had a son, Ian, who was eight years old at the time. And like David Brown, Ian also had a premonition about the flight. He was just a child, but he begged her, the book ComCheck says, not to go on the flight and was afraid something bad would happen to her. A quote from Laurel's husband, John Clark, Ian's father, says, he was very worried, very worried about her. He had some very, very moving premonitions that something bad was going to happen and he didn't want her to go. As a mom, that just breaks my heart. I, moms, all moms have mom guilt, especially working moms. And with such a demanding job as astronaut, I'm sure her son begging her not to go on this mission must have just really torn her up. But I'm also sure that she never believed that anything bad would happen and had complete Faith in NASA's safety. So that just makes the story extra heartbreaking that Ian Clark, little Ian Clark, was right about his premonition. The last astronaut on this crew was also a very special one who uh, was a rookie as well. This was his first space flight. It's Elon Ramon. He is an Israeli. He was from the Israeli Space Agency, age 48, the oldest of the crew, and also the very first Israeli astronaut ever. He was a payload specialist on this shuttle mission. His um, background was that he was an Israeli fighter pilot and also the son and grandson of a Holocaust survivor. His mother and his grandmother both survived the Holocaust. He took mementos from Yad Vashem, the National Holocaust Memorial, with him into space. And it was a, just a huge deal for Israel to have their first astronaut. There was extra security around the mission because... He was the first Israeli astronaut, and there was a little fear that terrorism might come into play there. He was survived by his wife, Rona, and his four children, Asaf, Tal, Yifta, and Noah. His son, Asaf, died in 2009 on an Israeli Air Force training flight. He was a pilot like his dad, and there's an airport in Israel named after father and son. All right, so that is Columbia's distinguished crew. So let's talk about Columbia's mission. This was, like I said before, strictly a science-based mission, and Columbia left Earth for its 28th and final mission on January 16th, 2003. The official title of the mission was STS-107. I believe that stands for Space Transport System, the STS. 
And unlike most missions that had been occurring before it, it was strictly about conducting science experiments in space, not building or serving the International Space Station. So it was a little unusual in this era. Um, launch seemed to go off without a hitch, and Columbia made orbit with no problem. So launch is typically the dangerous, most dangerous part of a flight. So everyone was holding their breath during launch and then whew, let out a big sigh of relief after Columbia hit orbit with no problems. If you remember, Challenger exploded 73 seconds into the flight. So I always think about that, that 73 seconds. And then after, uh, after the throttle up happens and they, everyone is still safe and the shuttle continues to go, I always breathe a sigh of relief. So uh, anyway, the day after the launch, when NASA officials were carefully pouring over video from the launch, they saw that about 82 seconds into the launch, when Columbia was still ascending, a large piece of foam fell from a bipod ramp that attached the external tank to the shuttle. Now, eventually, the shuttle detaches from all the things, the solid rocket boosters, the external tank, all of that. But at this point, the external tank was still attached. And part of the way it was attached was by this ramp. So these ramps and tanks are covered with foam to keep everything inside the temperature that it's supposed to be. So the piece of foam that hit the shuttle was one of the biggest that NASA folks had ever seen. It was about, they say, the size of a briefcase and probably weighed about two pounds. So foam shedding, they called it, was a common and well-known problem. So, so common and well-known that they had a name for it, foam shedding. What happens when you launch and foam falls off the external tank? Um, NASA did not really consider it because it was so common a, quote, safety of flight risk because it happened on virtually every launch to some degree and had never really caused a problem. However, the size of this giant piece of foam and the debris spray it made as it hit the orbiter's left wing raised a lot of eyebrows. Side note, you'll hear me refer to the shuttle sometimes as the orbiter. Those are just kind of two interchangeable names for a space shuttle. Since there was a verified debris strike of foam on the orbiter, NASA's debris assessment team, yes, they had a team of this specific name on standby, that's how common it was, jumped into action. They reviewed the videos they had from every angle over and over again, and eventually decided that they wanted to get photos of the space shuttle in flight, in space, so they could see if there was any damage anywhere on the left side where the foam had impacted. So basically several members of this debris assessment team began requesting that NASA get the Department of Defense involved and get them to take some photos of Columbia with their spy satellites to make sure there wasn't any damage from the foam strike that would endanger the shuttle on re-entry. They were mainly thinking of danger to heating tiles, but there was also some, I'm sorry, heat shield tiles, I should say, but there was also some speculation that damage to a door near the wheel well on that left side of the shuttle could also cause some catastrophic damage. The Department of Defense was all about it and totally willing, but eventually NASA managers, more than one, above the debris assessment team decided they didn't really need the pictures and they called off the request. As you can imagine, this uh, frustrated and angered some of the members of the debris assessment team felt they couldn't really do their job without all the information, but that's what happened. One manager in particular, if you watch a lot of the documentaries on this subject named Linda Ham, ended up being kind of scapegoated after the fact because she was on tape basically saying, 
they didn't need the images because if the shuttle had been damaged, there was, quote, nothing they could really do about it anyway. Ugh, doesn't sound great in retrospect. However, after reading the book Comcheck about Columbia's last flight, I think it's safe to say that Ham was just one of several managers who agreed on the decision not to seek imaging and that, you know, it was piled on her, but it was not solely her fault. So there were multiple managers in the what they call mission management team or MMT who decided they did not need additional imaging of the orbiter to assess whether or not it was safe for reentry. Basically, the managers decided that because the foam was so light, it couldn't really possibly hurt the orbiter. The crew of Columbia was told about the foam strike in an email on January 23rd while they were still in space. And NASA underscored that there was absolutely no no concern for re-entry and said the only reason they were even telling the crew about it was so they would be ready for questions if a reporter asked about it upon their return. The debris assessment team did finally finish their report on the foam strike on January 26th. And although they did conclude that there was no safety of flight issue from the foam strike, they also criticized their managers on the mission management team for coming to that same conclusion before their report was finalized and delivered. While all this was going on, the crew of the Columbia was up in space doing their thing, conducting their science experiments, and communicating both with NASA on the ground and with the astronauts on the International Space Station. By all accounts, the mission was going really well. But after 16 days, the crew was ready to get home to their families on the morning of February 1st, 2003. They were scheduled to land at Kennedy Space Center in Florida around 9 a.m. Eastern Time. All of their families were there waiting at the runway. When NASA is scheduling a re-entry, it's all computerized so they know to the second what time that shuttle will land. The crew started re-entry procedures in the early morning hours and all went according to plan. Laurel Clark was even videotaping the crew as they went about their preparations for their final few minutes in space. At 8.44 a.m. Eastern Time, Columbia reentered the Earth's atmosphere at an altitude of 400,000 feet. That is way up there, very high in the air. On the video that astronaut Laurel Clark took, you can hear the astronauts commenting about how bright it is outside their windows as the extreme heat of reentry creates a light show. One of them even says, I'd sure hate to be outside right now, which is rather heartbreaking and haunting considering what comes next. The reason that they were worried about the foam strike damaging heat protecting tiles on the shuttle is because of those extreme heating temperatures in the Earth's atmosphere when you re-enter that can really damage the shuttle if those heat tiles aren't in place. In any case, as the shuttle streaked through the sky, avid shuttle watchers across the country watched. They had their cameras out. They were ready. They knew what time Columbia was supposed to come nearby across California and Nevada. These watchers began to see something curious. It looked like small, bright chunks were coming off of the shuttle from time to time. Many shuttle watchers got this curious phenomenon on video, and you can see it on YouTube and in the documentaries that I will recommend in the show notes. You can see multiple uh, different shuttle watchers in multiple different states and locations seeing this happen, the small bright chunks coming off and adding another trail to the streaks of light from the shuttle. At 8.54 a.m., NASA flight directors were puzzled when some temperature sensors on the left wing failed. This was odd, but not insurmountable, and they didn't flip out or anything. 
flight director Leroy Kane took the info in stride and asked questions to make sure the sensors weren't all connected or that a larger problem was indicated. All other signals from the shuttle remained normal. However, four minutes later at 8.58 a.m. Eastern Time, Columbia's sensors indicated a loss of tire pressure on the left side. Flight director Kane knew that this was indeed serious. With no tire pressure, Columbia would surely crash on landing. Rick Husband and Willie McCool would have had their work cut out for them to try to get on the ground safely. Less than a minute later, problems and worries compounded when all radio contact with Columbia was lost at 8.49 and 32 seconds. NASA's last message was, Columbia, we read your tire pressure, pressure message and did not copy your last. Husband responded with, Roger, uh, and then nothing, just static. That was the last thing heard from the Columbia. At 9 o'clock a.m. and 18 seconds, shuttle watchers in Texas observed the catastrophic breakup of Columbia as it hurtled through the skies above. Huge and small, bright, shining chunks flew through the air in the most tragic yet breathtaking catastrophe ever. The entire crew, all seven members of Columbia, were lost. At Kennedy Space Center, near the runway, the landing clock ticked down, but the shuttle did not appear. No sonic booms announced its arrival, and the once joyous families that eagerly awaited their loved ones began to worry and frown. Soon, cell phones and radios began buzzing, and the astronauts' families were whisked away to the crew quarters, as the Challenger's families had been before them. Back in the control room, flight directors heard reports of local news stations playing video of what was apparently the shuttle breaking up. They felt despair, but they remained professional. Lock the doors, Flight Director Leroy Kane commanded. You can see this moment on YouTube and in documentaries. It's very poignant, very stunning, very, it's up, you know, it's upsetting because you can tell that they are concerned, but they're not getting emotional. Uh, Leroy Kane knew it was time to secure all their data and preserve all the information they had for the investigation that was going to ensue. He knew that they had just lost seven friends and colleagues and the shuttle that carried them. Whew, it was a heavy moment. But they soldiered on with professionalism because they knew their data was important to preserve. So there was indeed an independent um, accident investigation board formed called the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, or CAIB. It was headed by a neutral party, retired U.S. Naval Ad Navy Admiral Hal Gaiman, who had, not, had nothing to do with NASA whatsoever. Um, the CAIB had a huge job in front of them, and it was all dependent on another huge job, which was the recover of the shuttle's debris, which had fallen in an absolutely unfathomably huge debris field over, it was over 2,000 square feet, 2,000 square miles, I'm sorry, in Texas alone. And that's just Texas. There was also plenty of debris in Louisiana as well. So it was a huge, huge debris field. Thankfully, the remains of all seven of the crew were found within the first three days so they could be returned to their families. After weeks of searching, NASA recovered over 82,000 pieces of debris, which accounted for almost 40% of the shuttle by weight. So they found a lot, but there was still a lot missing. Um, sadly, in the search for Columbia, the tragedy was compounded when two more heroes lost their lives when a Forest Service helicopter crashed while on searching uh, for debris on March 27, 2003, killing Jules F. Meyer Jr. and Charles Krennic. So it 
became even more of a disaster, you know, over a month later, weeks and weeks after the initial loss of the shuttle. And it just makes this story so much more tragic. There were two really amazing discoveries um, among the Columbia degree that debris that helped aid with the investigation. One was the black box recorder, which was invaluable to the investigation. And it's really amazing that it survived because shuttle black boxes aren't made to survive a crash like airplane black boxes were. So they were amazed when they found it intact after it fell from such a very crazy height. Um, they also found the videotape that Laurel Clark took of the crew during re-entry, which stops several minutes before the emergency began. But it's really cool. You can go back and see that on YouTube again or on any documentaries that I'll recommend in the show notes. Um, just to see how excited they were for re-entry. It's heartbreaking. I, I'm sure it's neat for their families to have those moments, but whew, it's it's hard too. The black box showed that sensor data indicated that the that the left wing was the likely source of the heat damage that caused Columbia to break apart. And this led the accident team back to that foam. The foam strike that had been witnessed on the launch tapes because it had clearly struck the left wing. In press conferences immediately after the tragedy, NASA officials said it was really hard for them to believe that a very light two pound piece of foam could cause catastrophic damage to the orbiter. But investigators obviously still had to go down that path and make sure that it wasn't the cause. So they did what they do and they were able to narrow down the heat damage to the left wing of the shuttle and showed that it was caused by superheated gases during re-entry that bypassed the heat shields to one of the reinforced carbon-carbon panels on the leading edge of the shuttle's left wing. So they determined that the speed and velocity at which the foam would have traveled then they did a test. They fired, this is crazy. You can also see this in these documentaries. You guys really need to watch this. Um, they did a test where they fired a briefcase sized piece of foam at the number eight reinforced carbon carbon panel that would go on the leading edge of a shuttle wing. So they fired this with a really powerful gun at the, however 500 miles an hour, however fast the, the it would have been coming at the shuttle. And so they recreated the force with which that light piece of foam would have struck the Columbia's wing. And the result that they got was a huge hole in the number eight reinforced carbon carbon panel, leading investigators to determine conclusively that the foam strike at launch was indeed what had caused Columbia's destruction. The hole on the wing let the superheated gases from space and re-entry into the shuttle and it basically burned it up from the inside out during re-entry, causing it to break up completely and, of course, causing the loss of seven brilliant and beautiful lives. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board was very critical of the NASA management structure that had, A, decided that foam strikes were an acceptable safety risk simply because they'd never caused a catastrophe before, and B, decided not to try and do anything about it while the Columbia was still in flight because they didn't think that they could, quote, fix it anyway. The board determined that if they had indeed discovered the hole in the wing through satellite imaging, the Columbia's time in space could have been extended for 30 days to allow for a rescue mission. Now, would have been a very, very risky rescue mission. Would it have worked? Who knows? But it is hard for me to believe, especially after seeing Apollo 13, and knowing that story, that NASA just would have done absolutely nothing. So, unfortunately, we'll never know what could have been done and if it would have worked or not. But it really would have been amazing 
if they could have tried. So as with the aftermath of Challenger, NASA flights were suspended until they got things fixed up and really, really made sure shuttle flights were safe and got the foam shedding issue under control. It was uh, grounded. The program was grounded for over two years, and they eventually returned to flight with a shuttle discovery on July 26, 2005. But there was a foam shedding problem on discovery. They obviously made it back to Earth just fine, but they again shut the program down for a few more months while they fixed that. And then finally got that fixed and really got back into flight a few months later. And Columbia accident basically signaled the death knell of the shuttle program after the space station was completed. At some point, George, uh, President George H.W. Bush announced that the shuttle program would end in 2010. And then that needed to be extended because of space station reasons. So it was finally retired in 2011. Columbia's crew was remembered at several memorials at the time of their deaths, and on Mars, the rover Spirit's landing site was ceremonially named Columbia Memorial Station, and also seven asteroids orbiting the sun between Mars and Jupiter now bear the crew's names. But I know they are most often remembered in the hearts of their loved ones and in the lives of their children and their families. I personally think of them often, like I said, I am kind of obsessed with NASA and with their triumphs and their disasters. And so I ask as you finish listening to this episode that you would take a moment to remember Rick, Willie, Michael, David, Casey, Laurel, and Elon. All right, we've come to the end of another disaster. That is the Space Shuttle Columbia, February 1st, 2003, and also resulting in the lives of those two Forest Service employees a few weeks later during the search for Columbia de debris. But thank you for hanging with me and letting me tell you this remarkable yet tragic space disaster story. I love telling stories and I hope you'll stick with me and the weeks to come to hear a lot more. If you like this, do me a favor, pretty please. And please rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. And if you've got a disaster idea for me that you would love to see covered, please email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail. And don't forget to visit me at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and Twitter. I would love to hear from you, to interact with you, to find out who you are and why you're into disasters like me. So I am Jenny, the Disaster Queen. Check the show notes for these great sources if you're interested in learning more about Columbia. And until next time, do not be a disaster, guys. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.